Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning. Welcome to North Sound Church. So good to see all of you this morning. Thanks to uh, our worship team. You may not know this. You don't see Kirk sing up front like that. He's usually... Yeah. He's usually hidden back here, but Kirk has got a great voice. Do you see that he's actually miked? So he uh, is often uh, singing along. So uh, Kirk, at least we get to see you uh, this time. Sheila, thank you. And Casey and Chris, thank you. You guys put together, uh, Casey put together uh, an amazing team today because we talked on Tuesday and she said, I just have to warn you about Sunday. We don't have any guitar players. I said, well, what about Casey? He said, well, he's running sound. <laughs> so we kind of were doing everything that we could. We got Mary on the is it a violin or a fiddle, Mary? I, when it's a lone instrument, I, yeah, it, it was good anyway, whatever it was. Don't you love, that's the theme from the mission, the movie that was put to uh, this wonderful song about the Holy Spirit. Um, I love that. This week I got a text from uh, Erica, who's part of our congregation. Um, she's the morning host at KCMS, and she said, could you, uh, could you call in and uh, tell me what uh, Memorial Day means to you? And so I called in, and one of the things I said to her was um, that it's personal. And I don't know for you how many Memorial Day is personal. Um, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be. But for me, my uh, uncle, Uncle Bev, my dad's brother, was killed uh, when a bomber uh, crashed in uh, World War II, and my great uncle, uh, my grandma's brother, was killed in World War I. And so a moment like this and tomorrow when we have a service at the cemetery as well is meaningful. For all of us, it's meaningful because here we are on a Sunday morning where there are places in the world where we can't do this. And here we are able to do this because of those who were uh, willing to give their lives for us. So we uh, remember them today. We uh, are going to jump into our text for today, and I again encourage you to follow along. The slide will be a cheat sheet for you, but uh, Dan and I were just talking, Dan who read scripture, we're just talking about how we have Bibles where we've circled and we've underlined and we've written in the margin, and uh, maybe that's, you know, analog, old school uh, but I don't think many of us, when I follow along now, when Robin or Finney or somebody's preaching, um, I typically don't uh, cut and paste from the sermon. And so it's like I'm not collecting the insights. So having said all of that, now is the time to get your iPads out and your phones out. Uh, but I think especially bringing your own Bible and being able to mark it up is particularly helpful. For those of you that may be guests this morning, and uh, thank you for coming, all of you, uh, holiday weekends are scary for pastors because you just don't know if it's going to be you and your wife and, uh, if you're lucky, a couple of friends. And uh, here you are, so thank you, for, uh, thank you for being with us today. So 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at uh, verse 1. Dan read this for us earlier, but now we're going to unpack it together. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
So these first couple of verses talk about discipleship and the place of discipleship in the life of Christians. If you notice both here in these early verses and down in verse 10, basically he says, put these into practice more and more in your life. So so last week we talked about discipleship. If you remember, we talked about you are what you love, and that is the thing that we are drawn to. We talked about worship and how when we worship, when we get together, um, we are being formed by the act of worship. So Robin led us in prayer. He led us in the Lord's Prayer. Dan read scripture for us. Robin read the passage responsively. We sang songs. These things that we do form us. The repetition is good for us. We have read today, thank you, by the way, Casey, for getting those out for us. Um, this marks Pentecost, and we follow the liturgical calendar. I don't preach from what's called the lectionary, which says each Sunday you preach on these verses, but, but we believe in following the church year in the sense that we begin with Advent back in December or late November, and then we follow through the year, and basically it's like the life of Jesus, right, that brings us right up to Pentecost, the Spirit being poured out. And then you're going to see us move to green, and we're going to go to what's called ordinary time. doesn't mean it's ordinary, but uh, it means that it's not a particular remembrance in the life of Jesus that will take us from next Sunday uh, all the way through uh, until Advent again this year. For those of us who are a little bit older, we have to ask a sobering question, and that is, if we've been following Jesus for 30 years, do we have 30 years of growth or do we have one year of growth 30 times? I'll ask you to ponder that because I think it's a question that is worth pondering because, again, our scripture says we're to do this more and more that our spiritual pilgrimage, our discipleship, our holiness is a lifelong experience that we are to grow into. I've also learned that for some folks, learning about obedience, learning about discipleship happens before they actually become a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever met some, some good people who are not yet followers of Jesus and you say to yourself, boy, they'll make a really good Christian? I found that uh, with, uh, with my friend Ben, who was in the first service this morning. So I had the privilege of baptizing Ben uh, about two years ago. And it was a, such a joy. One of, the, one of the great things that a pastor does is baptism, marking someone coming into the faith. Well, Ben learned some things uh, about discipleship before I baptized him. Ben was an F-14 Tomcat squadron commander, and he flew for Alaska Airlines 737s, and then he became a vice president at Alaska. And in the course uh, of this, I think we have a picture of Ben, um, in the course of this journey, um, Ben wrote to me last week, after last Sunday's sermon, when we talked about how our character is formed, and in Ben's email, he said, as CEO of my three commands, I believe that if I knew the troop that swept the floors and his concerns, I could have a combat effective place. It worked, he said. And then he said what is really insightful. He said, same 
with following Christ. Ben began that journey, that journey that prepared him as a Christ follower before he even began to know and to engage in relationship. Long before he was baptized, he knew something about caring for everyone. And what's my point here? Well, my point is that we need to be open to people of goodwill in our lives, even if they are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting to see the language Paul uses in the first verse and in verse 8. He writes, to urge you in the Lord Jesus... And he goes on to say, and what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 8, he speaks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. When I was in seminary, I read a lot of theology about the Holy Spirit. And the reason was that I grew up Pentecostal. And as I mentioned, I think last week, um, it was a wonderful experience to experientially enter into a relationship with God through the Spirit. But there were some questions I had theologically, and so I began to read Theology of the Holy Spirit. And one of the more insightful books was a book by a scholar by the name of James D.G. Dunn. Uh, He wrote a book called Jesus and the Spirit. And I discovered what a small world that Christian scholarship was because my Greek professor in seminary was the mentor to Jimmy Dunn, uh, as he is called, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and so it was kind of cool to have that, this guy that was influential through his writing, so I never met, but was connected to the guy that taught me Greek. Uh, and then, only to discover a few years ago when I met Finney Philip, Dr. Finney from Udaipur uh, in India, to discover that he did his PhD degree at the University of Durham underneath Jimmy Dunn. And it was so cool. But the insight that I got from Jesus and the Spirit was that in addition to being the Son of God incarnate, we need to understand Jesus as being a Spirit-filled man. Why do we do that? Well, it gives us encouragement and hope and help that if Jesus functioned as a Spirit-filled man and did what he did, perhaps there is more empowering for us than what we are living into. If you remember in the Gospel of Luke, at different places it says, uh, Jesus, full of the Spirit, did this. So the first place is Jesus was uh, in in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 days. And the Scripture says that when he came out of the wilderness, he was full of the Holy Spirit. We have to be careful theologically because Jesus didn't give up being the Son of God when he was incarnate, but Paul talks about an emptying that he did, and so in some sense, it's appropriate for us to understand him as a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and a guide for us. What that means here is that, is that in this conversation, The Holy Spirit is a very real part of the dialogue between Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians and their conversation because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, which is a part of that conversation, that somehow Jesus is close in that conversation. And my preaching is not Scripture, 
But we have all been promised the Holy Spirit, and God's will for us is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and so God's Spirit is a part of this conversation. It isn't just my words, it's not just intellectual insight, but it's in fact God's Spirit is at work in you and in me, quickening in our hearts the message that God has for us. The next thing I noticed in this passage has to do with the will of God. Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So one of the sermon topics if folks are asked what they want the pastor to preach on is the will of God. Everybody wants to know what the will of God is for their lives. Many folks are drawn to prophets who, uh, who will offer a personal word of prophecy. Often it happens in a home, and someone by word of mouth will say that a prophet is coming to the home and uh, will be willing to speak a word over you. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. I know Pastor Robin uh, was in uh, a church, a small uh, Hispanic church in Mexico when God spoke to him in a, you know, in a powerful way. And so there is, there is, there is good that can come out out of that, although we need to be careful that we're finding guidance from some human being's word rather than looking uh, at the scripture. Because the will of God is found so clearly in the scripture. What is God's will for you? Well, it says it here in this passage, and it's crystal clear for all of us. It says God's will for us is our sanctification. That is our holiness, our discipleship, his will for us is that we put on the character of Christ and look like him. You want to know what God's will is for you? That's what God's will is for you and for me. We need to look more and more like Jesus the longer we live. Now, Paul goes into God's will for the Thessalonians more specifically here. And he says it has to do with their sexual ethics. Explicitly, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. The word that's used for sexual immorality is the famous word pornea. And uh, the English word that's often used is fornication as sex outside of marriage. Uh, but it has a much broader meaning that covers sexual immorality more broadly. This would include pornography, uh, sex outside of marriage, sex with prostitutes, including temple prostitutes in Thessalonica. And so without going into more detail about the nature, you kind of get the idea of just sexual immorality writ large. F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, notes this regarding this passage, and this is very helpful in understanding the, the, the sexual culture of the first century. He says, the injunction to holiness concentrates on the matter of sexual morality. This is not the whole of holiness, but is an important aspect of it, and one which needed to be especially stressed when converts from Greek paganism were being instructed in the Christian way. 
The practice of fornication, which the Thessalonian Christians are urged to avoid, meant in the strict sense commerce with prostitutes, but covered many forms of extramarital sexual intercourse. The idea of confining sexual intercourse within marriage was foreign to Greek conventional morality of the period. The general attitude is frequently illustrated by a quotation from Demosthenes who says, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day children, excuse me, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians as our home. And so for 2,000 years, the Christian gospel as revealed in Jesus Christ and the radical way in which he treated women and in the history of the church, the transformation of women being property of men to being fully understood to be created in the image of God and equal with men began to change over 2,000 years, two millennia. But what we have found is that this progress in the understanding of human beings as sexual beings has in the last 60 years gone in the wrong direction. It seems that the sexual revolution beginning in the 60s was based on a secular age. So the centrality of the gospel, the Bible, the church, at least a quasi-Christian nation began to change and the worldview went more secular. And the secular worldview then provided a place when technology was able to bring us the birth control pill in the 60s. Technology brought us abortion as a secondary method of birth control. And the idea then was that women could now be as free as men sexually. Antibiotics would look after sexually transmitted diseases, the pill, and abortion would look after unwanted pregnancies. Feminists suggested that the world of sexual pleasure opened for women just like for men. But friends, it wasn't that simple. The movement of our culture toward increasing sexual license has been head spinning. Have you noticed how quickly things have changed? It's like, it's amazing how quickly we have gone from what was to what is today. I don't know if you followed the uh, fiasco with the Los Angeles Dodger baseball team this week, but the Dodgers invited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Did you get that name? The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. This is a group of men who dress as nuns and they, um, they, they, they have as their motto, go and sin some more. And their history is described this way as having a mock mass in 1994 that featured Holy Communion wafers and tequila, a midnight confessional contest held in a San Diego gay bar that gave prizes to those with the hottest confessions, and the group's annual Hunky Jesus contest every Easter Sunday. They've taken on names, uh, the sisters, the men, have taken on names that are in some cases so vulgar they're not appropriate to mention, not only in mixed company, but in any company. And now a professional baseball team is going to 
honor them with a Community Hero Award on Pride Night coming up in June. And the Catholic Church is obviously up in arms, and we should be as well, that, that a group that openly mocks our Catholic brothers and sisters should be honored in such a way by a professional baseball team. Our culture still may not be as bad as the first century, what I read earlier, but we have come to a place, I think, seen by the prophet Isaiah when he said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I think we would be pretty discouraged if when we looked at history, we saw that the trajectory just kept going in one direction. Because the trajectory that I've talked about is not a particularly good trajectory for our future. But the good news is that when we look at history, we see it's not just one direction, but in fact, changes happen in history. There are awakenings, there are revivals, there are people coming to their senses, there is a turning. And we may be in a place now where we're beginning to see that change. Some of you may have heard the name Louise Perry. Louise Perry, I don't know what her faith situation is, whether or not she's a Christian. She's a 30-year-old British feminist who has recently written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She writes this, she says, remove the progressive goggles and the history of the last 60 years looks different. The new sexual culture isn't so much about the liberation of women as so many feminists would have us believe, but the adaptation of women to the expectations of a familiar character, Don Juan. Casanova, and more recently, Hugh Hefner. Friends, you see, Jesus and the early Christians radically changed the place of women in the culture. They offered them unheard of respect in those days and opportunity. In many ways, the events of the last 60 years have put us back in, uh, to a place that is not healthy. And I think for the Christians in Thessalonica in the first century and Christians in the United States in the 21st century, the message is the same. God has called us for holiness, and that is the good life. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us, and Paul addresses the church in Corinth the same way he addresses the church in Thessalonica when he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, it's important, I think, for us to realize as we engage with those outside of the church that being committed to a biblical understanding of human sexuality is not to be sexist, it's not to be homophobic, it's not to be transphobic. Every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being, every human being deserves the respect that comes from being created in the image of God. But at the same time, 
we stand for what the scripture says that sexual intercourse is designed by God to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. In spite of the direction of our culture, I have found joy. I keep finding joy in meeting people of character. This week, uh, Monday morning early, I got a phone call from the Edmonds Police Department, and they were at the home of someone who's a part of the North Sound family. She hasn't been uh, to church. She's been part of our online folks, and welcome those of you that are watching online. A part of our online family since COVID, but was actually here in first service this morning. And uh, the reason I got the phone call was that her 50-year-old son who lives with her had just passed away uh, overnight. And uh, the, uh, the medics had been there, uh, the police were still there, the, the coroner, uh, the medical examiner had not yet uh, come. And so I quickly um, headed over to be with her. And in the course of spending this time with her, she shared with me part of her story that I didn't realize. And her story included the fact that when she was a young mom with three little children, her husband was uh, unfaithful to her. And in his unfaithfulness, he eventually left her with the three young children. And now she's on her own, she's divorced, she doesn't have a skill or a trade in order to make the kind of money that she needs. And so what does she do? She goes back to school. She gets an RN degree and begins to work as a nurse to support her children in order to raise them. I find myself blessed when I'm with people like this. Maybe many of you in the crowd are this way as well because these kinds of heroes, these peoples that push back on what we have been describing are typically not known, but they're also typically not alone. Folks like her may be unknown to many, but not unknown to God. I want to say that again for those of you that may be this kind of a hero. You may be unknown to many, but you're not unknown to God. The third thing we want to talk about before we close is what else is God's will? Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So, do you remember when, those of you that have been in the church for a while, do you remember when we moved from hymns to choruses? One of the first of those choruses was, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Remember that? And uh, we, we had other ones that uh, we used to sing, another one that, uh, that comes to mind uh, for me in terms of those, those kind of choruses is, and if you, if you know this, share it with me. Well, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. So some of you, like Craig, were singing uh, aggressively, and others had this blank look on your face like, where did he come up with that? Well, we, uh, we're supposed to be known by our love, right? They'll know we are Christians by our love. It's what 
we read in the scripture, but we haven't fared so well lately. The Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, and now the Methodists have been splitting. And unfortunately, the rhetoric between the sides has always not suggested that there is a deep love between them. Anybody remember the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, but the first one is love. Remember Paul wrote these words, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I'm nothing. May God help us to love each other so powerfully that it's obvious. It just exudes from our lives. Second thing we see in this passage is that we're to live quietly and mind our own affairs. It's an interesting Greek phrase here. It said, literally, be ambitious to live quietly. (laughs) What a juxtaposition of words. Be ambitious to live quietly. So it's clear that some of the Thessalonians were excited about the second coming. They were looking forward to Jesus coming, but it was affecting their behavior in some negative ways. And so as we um, look at the, the passage here, we see that Paul told them to slow down. Don't get carried away with the focus. It's wonderful to be excited about Jesus coming back, but you need to be ambitious to live quietly in the midst of that. We have this going on in America today, I'm afraid, an unfortunate mixture of prophecy and political activism. There's a road show some of you may have heard of called Patriots Arise, and it provides people with an amalgam of prophecy and conspiracy theory. One report put it this way, the Patriots Arise event opened with a video of conspiracy theories related to QAnon that prophesied that control systems, including media propaganda, the child trafficking, and the slave economy would crumble down. A robotic voiceover forecast a great awakening and an image of a guillotine blade accompanied the promise of executions, justice, and victory. What does it mean to be a 21st century American Christian that is called to be ambitious to live quietly? What does that mean for us? It's just as valid for us as it was for them. Well, it doesn't mean, I don't think, that we become Amish and and that we totally withdraw from the life of our nation, nor do I think it means we out social justice the left in their social justice. What does it mean for us in the situation in which we are in? I think it means, friends, above all, that we engage others with humility. We engage others with humility. Perhaps we can be kind. Perhaps we can speak the truth in love. Perhaps we can work with others who see things differently but are willing to work with us for the common good. Finally, Paul says, work with your hands, be dependent on no one, and conduct yourself becomingly toward outsiders. So it's evident that Paul believes Christians should work hard 
and not find themselves dependent upon others. This is pretty obvious, isn't it? That it's not much of a testimony to Christ if we have to go begging to people who are not followers of Jesus Christ because we don't like work. That's not a very good situation nor a very good witness for followers of Jesus. If you've been a part of North Sound Church, you know that one of my concerns is how Christians in general are seen by those who are outside the church, by those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. The Christian symbols that were displayed in the January 6th attack on the Capitol gave me great pause. It didn't help our cause as followers of Jesus Christ to be associated with this. Many of us are reluctant to use the perfectly good word evangelical because of the political associations that it now has in the minds of many. So what does it mean for us to conduct ourselves becomingly toward outsiders? This week I was reading about uh, Tim Keller, who last week I mentioned um, had passed away at the age of 72, and such a, such a terrible loss for the church. Heaven is enriched, but a tremendous loss for us. And there was a biographer of Tim Keller by the name of Colin Hansen, and Colin wrote about Tim and about his approach to the things that we've been talking about today in Christianity Today. And as I close this morning, I want to share with you um, some of what he said. Then this is, uh, this is Keller's biographer. Keller cited the work of Larry Hurtado in Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. In this incisive study, Hurtado showed how the persecuted early church wasn't just offensive to Jews and Greeks, it was also attractive. Did you get that? <laughs> the church wasn't just offensive. Is the church offensive to some people today? Yeah. But the early church was also attractive. Are we attractive to people today as well? The first Christians opposed abortion and infanticide by adopting children. They did not retaliate, but instead forgave. They cared for the poor and marginalized. Their strict sexual ethic protected and empowered women and children. Christianity brought together hostile nations and ethnic groups. Jesus broke apart the connection between religion and ethnicity when he revealed a God for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Allegiance to Jesus trumped geography, nationality, and ethnicity in the church. As a result, Christians gained perspective so they could critique any culture, and they learned to listen to the critiques from fellow Christians embedded in different cultures. Now, Tim Keller was invited just a couple of years ago to receive a prestigious award from Princeton Seminary. The prestigious award was the Abraham Kuyper Award that was given for distinctive service in theology. And uh, some people on the left, because Tim Keller stands for biblical values, uh, a biblical view of human sexuality, went to the leadership, the administration of Princeton Seminary, and said, you shouldn't be honoring this guy because he's X, Y, and Z, right? And so they withdrew the award. They said they are not going to give him the Abraham Kuyper Award. The irony is that Abraham Kuyper is rolling over in his grave over what is going on at Princeton Seminary. But having said that, um, 
we find ourselves now in a situation where Tim was still invited to speak to Princeton Seminary and offer the lecture. He just wasn't going to get the award. So we read this from his biographer. He said, instead of delivering this lecture at Princeton, Keller could have challenged the administration and canceled his talk. This would have gained greater attention and support from his fellow conservative evangelicals. He could likely have raised more money for his ministry, too. But Keller put his teaching into practice. He had told Christians for years that the gospel offers a distinct alternative to the intolerance of secularism and the tribalism of religion. He goes on to say, I don't see widespread evidence that evangelicals have taken Keller's advice or followed his example. Intolerance has been met with intolerance. Hostility with more hostility. But I suspect if the Holy Spirit blesses us with another awakening, our churches will look more like what Keller envisioned, where grace will once more find a way through the tangle of religion and secularism. Friends, perhaps this is what it looks like to conduct ourselves becomingly before outsiders, where through our lives, grace finds a way through the tangles of religion and secularism, and where both love and truth prevail. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the insights of your word And we thank you, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit living in our lives and witnessing to the truth that is in your word. Lord, help us in the days ahead to be people who are a part of a church that is attractive to those outside the church. And in the midst of that, Lord, help us always to speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen.